This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, September 30th. I'm Jillian Richards. Today we'll feature Daily Signal Editor-in-Chief Kate Trinko's interview with Dr. Miriam Grossman, a psychiatrist who has written about the dangers of gender ideology. Grossman discusses the rise of gender dysphoria among adolescent girls in the past five to ten years. She explains how most kids become comfortable with their biological sex after puberty. Yet, as you'll hear, many of these kids will automatically get put on puberty blockers if they display gender dysphoric tendencies, even though they will most likely grow out of that stage within a few years. Listen to Dr. Grossman expose the transgender medical complex right after this. We've reached a critical point in American history. Capitol Hill has become ground zero for pushing back against the left, and we want to equip you for a career there. Our Ready, Set, Hill program prepares you to not only find a job on the Hill, but advance conservative principles and impact public policy. It's just a two-day commitment, and we're currently taking applications for August, September, and October. Get more info and sign up at heritage.org training. Just look for the Ready, Set, Hill program. Joining us at the National Conservatism Conference is Dr. Miriam Grossman, a psychiatrist who's been writing about gender ideology for well over a decade now. Dr. Grossman, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So as a psychiatrist, how do you view the issue of gender dysphoria in minors? Well, we're being told that gender dysphoria is uh, kind of a, a very unique condition and that we must affirm the child's chosen identity. We must affirm uh, the way that the child wants to be, uh, wants to present herself or himself to the world. So in other words, as a psychiatrist, I'm being told by uh, professional organizations and by uh, Health and Human Services that children need to be affirmed. Um, Gender dysphoria itself is an intense feeling of discomfort uh, with your biology as as a boy or a girl. And um, we've always known that this exists. Uh, In psychiatry, it's something that I learned about when I was in training many years ago. But it was so rare that, you know, we never expected to ever see anyone with gender dysphoria because uh, it was one in, you know, tens of thousands of kids. And it was almost always found in boys. Um, for every uh, girl that had gender dysphoria, there were six boys. Um, this is, what I'm speaking about now is, you know, way, way before the current epidemic and the current social contagion, which is what we have right now. So gender dysphoria is an intense discomfort with one's body as male or female, and an intense desire to be perceived as the opposite sex, to live as the opposite sex. And in many cases with, the, with little kids, they will insist that they are the opposite sex. And so you have this idea of being born in the wrong body, which has now become sort of mainstream. It was never anything that was believed by individuals in the medical community uh, until recently. But right now, with uh, what's called gender-affirming care, 
that's one of the premises, really, of gender-affirming care. So gender dysphoria used to be an extremely rare condition, and that we saw it in two different populations, uh, children, and mostly boys, and middle-aged men in their maybe 30s or 40s. Um, these were the individuals that would complain of gender dysphoria, and these are the individuals also who would sometimes eventually become interested in transitioning medically to the opposite sex. Now, we have a completely different situation right now. And for about the past five to ten years, we've experienced a, a new phenomenon, which is we're seeing gender dysphoria in a new population, which is adolescent, adolescent onset, and mostly girls. And it's happening at uh, phenomenally high levels. So we're seeing uh, the studies now in, like there was a study of the uh, high schools in, and middle schools in Pittsburgh, and it showed uh, about 10% of kids were identifying as either uh, as the opposite sex or as non-binary, a new wow. word, a new word meaning neither male or female or some other category. And I think at this point the 10% is actually a, an underestimate. That's um, incredible. Yeah, we're really reaching, and especially on college campuses, very uh, high levels of kids that are questioning their biology and identifying as something else than just simple, let's say, simply being male or female. So obviously the big debate right now is, you know, if someone decides they're transgender, what responsibilities does the medical profession have? And you mentioned in your talk at the National Conservatism Conference that there's one study that you referred to as the Dutch Protocol that has really affected how the United States views this issue and how doctors here treat this issue. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this study? Sure. It's very important to understand this. The entire uh, the approach that we have now that physicians and psychotherapists are being told they must follow is called gender-affirming care. Um, recently, Joe Biden and his uh, assistant secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Levine, also uh, spoke to the American people, American parents, and instructed them that uh, one of the most important things, one of the most crucial things that they can do for their uh, kids who are identifying as uh, transgender is to provide for them gender-affirming care. Uh, therapy and uh, medical interventions. These, these were called crucial. These things were called crucial. So I just want to underscore that what is being called crucial is actually based on one, the results of one very small study that was done years ago in the Netherlands. And I will explain what that study is about. 
but I first want to emphasize that the Dutch protocol is the foundation of the type of care that doctors like myself, therapists, uh, endocrinologists, you know, who prescribe hormones, uh, surgeons, and so on, are being told is the, the way to approach these children. Gender-affirming care. Now, what happened in the Netherlands uh, years ago was that uh, in, in, uh, until the 90s, the only people that would transition to live as the opposite sex uh, with hormones and surgery were, were adults. And, and almost only, I mean, the vast majority were, were men. And the results for those men were not so good. The cosmetic results were not good. And that is because they had already gone through male puberty. And so they had been masculinized by the testosterone that uh, surges during male puberty and beyond. And so they had many features that made it difficult for them to appear feminine as a female. And their mental health after transition was found to not be so good, and there were still high suicide rates in that population. So in in Holland, uh, a group of doctors had the idea that if we could intervene in, in these people's lives before puberty, and we could prevent the masculinization and feminization that happens during puberty. I mean, when you think about it, you think of someone who hasn't gone through puberty, they're really, you know, they're a child. They don't appear masculine or feminine, really. They could really uh, present as, as either. They're androgynous in a way. So um, it's only with the onset of puberty and the changes that occur um, you know, the breast growth and fat redistribution and um, g- facial hair and, 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 o- and the, all the other things that happen that it becomes more clear when we look at somebody whether they are male or female. So these Dutch doctors uh, wanted to find a way to identify those kids who were most likely to persist with their gender dysphoria for the rest of their lives, which is not an easy thing. In fact, it's impossible. You see, we can't predict who's going to persist with the gender dysphoria and who will uh, will get through it and will, you know, after a number of years, reach a point of being comfortable with one's biology, with one's body, and that is called desistance. So the kids whose gender dysphoria doesn't last, they're called desisters, and those for whom it does last, they're called people who persist. With, with you know, so so those are the terms that we use. So so the Dutch uh, group tried, and we cannot. Oh, what I meant to say, Katrina, is that we have no way of predicting which kids are going to fall into what category. But the vast majority, I mean, we have, we have so many, we have at least 11 studies that conclusively tell us that the vast majority of kids do desist. 
as they get into puberty and go through puberty and become adults. Okay. So for most of them, it's not a permanent thing. Correct. And I'm talking about huge numbers here, like depending on the study, between 60 to 90 percent of these kids. So this is a very tricky thing. We don't know which kids are going to persist and which kids are not. But the majority of them, well, at least in the little kids, we have a new population now of, of the teenagers, but at least in the little kids, we know that chances are good, if not very good, that they will not persist. Many of them end up to be gay and lesbian, uh, but they are comfortable and at peace with their physical bodies. So, so the Dutch um, got together 55 kids who they thought probably a good chance that they will persist with their gender dysphoria their entire lives. And these were, again, kids who started complaining about their sex and, and not wanting to be their sex or insisting that they were the opposite sex at a young age. Okay, four, six years old, little kids. And then they persisted with that for a number of years. It didn't come and go. It was, you know, it was persistent and they were insistent um, of, of this situation. So what they did is they took a medication um, that we now called puberty blockers. They were not invented to block puberty. They were invented... Um, well, they were, they were used for, for different conditions. One is called precocious puberty. So precocious puberty, it's, un, it's a, also a rare condition in which kids, boys and girls, begin to, they enter puberty way too early. Yeah. I mean, it, you know. about it, a nightmare. Yeah, it is a nightmare. It's, it's a nightmare. Um, girls, you know, six, seven years old yeah. begin to develop breasts. So the treatment for those kids is very often to give them um, medications that will stop that. I mean, these kids, though, you can, you can do laboratory work and discover that they actually have a medical condition. Okay. Okay, they have elevated levels of, of the hormones that shouldn't be elevated at that time in their life. So we treat them for a few years with, with blockers. They're, they're now called blockers. Um, and, uh, uh, and then when, you know, they're 11, 12 years old, those medications are stopped and they do, they do go into regular puberty. Okay. So I'm guessing the kids in the Dutch study were not going through premature puberty. Correct. Correct. They had gender dysphoria. Now, uh, this was the first time that puberty blockers were being used in this context. They're also used in other conditions. They're used um, with prostate cancer, endometriosis. They're used in sex offenders because they block testosterone, and testosterone, you know, uh, uh, increases sex drive. Okay. So they're, they're used in people who might be incarcerated or have really gotten into trouble with their um, urges. So what were the outcomes of these 55 kids who were put on puberty blockers? Okay. So it's a complicated subject, but um, for the purposes of our discussion, I'll just say that uh, they, they followed these kids for a year and a half after surgery. Okay. 
Uh, a year and a half is a very short time. Right, for the rest of your life. <laughs> they did discover, though, that after a year and a half... Oh, wait, I didn't say something very important. Okay. Okay, so, so two, two main things. First, that these kids develop gender dysphoria at an early age. Okay. And second is that if they had any significant mental health issues, they were disqualified. Got it. So okay. that would be anything beyond gender dysphoria, OCD, depression, uh, I, I don't know, all the kids' mental health issues. But. Oh, well, right now, kids have a lot, with gender dysphoria, are presenting with many, many mental health, you know, they have, many of them are on the autism spectrum, they have um, anxiety disorder, depression, OCD, eating disorders, um, self-injury. Oh, God. Uh, there, there's, there's many different issues that they struggle with. Okay, but so these kids in the Dutch study, no other uh, coexisting right. issues. They okay. were excluded if they had significant comor- psychiatric comorbidities. That was an exclusionary point. Okay. So they were healthy, psychologically, generally healthy kids, but they had gender dysphoria from an early age. Okay. Okay. So they got 55 of these kids, and they put them through this protocol, and they found that a year and a half, they were still very young. I think they were the old, they were still maybe 20, 21 was at the oldest. And they were in general doing well. And they were, uh, they had less gender dysphoria. So now there, there are many issues that I, I'm not going to go into here with all the problems related to this Dutch study. Um, I mentioned one just a minute ago, which is that the follow-up was so short. We now know that regret with um, undergoing medical and surgical transition takes a long time. It, takes, it can take up to eight or ten years to uh, experience that regret, number one, and then to you know, process it and accept it internally to the point of being able to admit it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to admit it not only to yourself but to others. Right. So that is a very complicated process because, you know, you have to imagine here that, you know, these, these young people have, over the years, everyone in their lives, uh, their, their families and their friends and their connections, they've all told them, you know, this is my identity. Mm-hmm. I have a new identity. I'm not male. I'm female. Uh, these, this is my new name. These are my pronouns. I'm sure I'm 100%. This is who I am. Um, don't challenge me. This is who, I, you know, I know who I am. And then after years and after these huge decisions that they've gone through and perhaps, you know, their families may not have been 100% on board and they may have alienated, you know, their relationships within their families. You know, this is a very complex thing. So you mentioned in your talk that part of the problem with, I believe, correct me if I got this wrong, that part of the problem with American doctors relying on this study was these kids didn't have coexisting mental issues or comorbidities, and today in America most kids with gender dysphoria do, so the study doesn't really seem applicable. Is that correct? That's that's correct. What I'm saying is that the current population, you have to compare apples and apples. This is not... This is, this is not apples and apples. The kids that we are, you know, this explosion of young people right now who are clamoring for puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgeries 
are a completely different population than those kids that were part of the Dutch study. And we can't, like I said in my talk, you know, if if someone come, two people come to a doctor and they have knee pain and one of them fell down and, you know, broke their kneecap and the other one has arthritis of their knee, we have to recognize there's different etiologies, different things going on. We don't just lump them together and treat one the same as the other. But that is what we're doing now. And it's being done because the professional organizations somehow have been captured by the ideology and they are coming out with um, guidelines and uh, policy statements and so on uh, and uh, and telling professionals that they that the only way to go with these kids the only ethical and effective treatment is to affirm kids no matter how young they are, no matter how troubled they may be, um, to accept their chosen identity and to put them on a fast track toward medicalization. So you mentioned the ideological capture, and I'm sure in medicine, as in many fields, um, there's people who are just afraid to speak out. But what are you hearing behind the scenes from other doctors, other psychiatrists, about this new and radical approach to gender dysphoria? What do they really think? Well, uh, there are, it, it, we can't know statistics. There, there's been no referendum. You know, it's not as if the American Psychiatric Association sends out uh, a questionnaire to every psychiatrist in the United States asking them questions about this issue and then taking all the answers and coming up with some sort of statistic or consensus that this is what psychiatrists or endocrinologists or surgeons all believe has to be done. That's just not how it works. Uh, the problem is that the public is led to believe that there is a consensus. Okay, so when Rachel Levine stands up and says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, I don't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but something like, uh, you know, the medical field is in agreement that this is the ethical way to uh, treat these children and she's presenting it to the American public as if there is some sort of consensus, that is simply false. That's simply incorrect. There is no consensus. In fact, there's huge debates that are going on. Um, the public doesn't necessarily hear about them, but they are going on. Some of them, you know, are behind closed doors and people don't want to be identified as opposing uh, gender-affirming care. But trust me, uh, more people than you might imagine are outraged and, and upset and, and just um, very, very disturbed about what we're seeing here. So lastly, um, at the Daily Signal, a lot of the time when we run an article about gender dysphoria, you know, we get emails from parents saying they have a child or they know a child and they don't know what to do. <laughs> they don't know where to turn, um, you know, to help their child with gender dysphoria beyond all the quote unquote experts, you know, pushing this gender affirming care. What would you recommend to a parent who finds themselves in this situation? First of all, the parent needs to know they are not alone. They are not the only parent on the face of the earth that when they hear their, their child comes home and makes a sudden surprise announcement, you know, mom, dad, 
uh, I'm no longer your daughter, I'm your son, call me by this new name, call me these new pronouns and take me to an endocrinologist, I want to take hormones. There are many thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of parents that have been in that position and who, 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 who refuse to just in a knee-jerk kind of a way uh, go with it because they know in their gut that they know their child and they know that there's other things going on and they're terrified, and they should be, of the idea that their child wants to medicalize. I mean, you know, haircuts and clothing uh, is one thing, but medicalizing irreversible physical changes. Um, you know, if, if a girl takes testosterone, she can, with, in about three months, her voice can be permanently lowered so for the rest of her life. Um, and believe me, I, I talk to a lot of young women who are in the position of now regretting that. And they have to live with it for the rest of their lives. You know, they get on the phone with people and everyone thinks that they're a young man. Um, people are confused. You go to the store, you go to a restaurant, whatever it may be, and they have to live with that. And that's just, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, a lowered voice is, you know, a relatively benign kind of a thing compared to other things that are happening like impact on fertility, um, sexual dysfunction, uh, cardiovascular risks, strokes, very serious medical uh, adverse effects. So what can parents do? So number one is that they shouldn't think that they're alone for a moment. There's many, many wonderful resources for parents who want um, want information that is that is not immersed in the ideology. Okay, parents who 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 refuse to be dismissed. You see, what's going on in gender affirming care is that the parents are actually being dismissed. Parent, you know, parents come into a therapist and say, "Wait a minute, what's what's going on?" Like, you know. Our child is, is autistic or our child, you know, is being treated for autism. Our child was sexually molested a few years ago. Like, we need to look into all that stuff before we automatically say, oh, yeah, you're a boy, change your name, change your pronouns, put you on testosterone. And, and what's happening is that, uh, and I'm hearing this a lot from parents, is that the therapist will say, if you don't accept that you now have a son and not a daughter you are the problem right now. And your lack of acceptance is going to increase the chance of your daughter ending her life. So that's a, that's a whole other discussion is the suicide yeah. thing, and maybe we can do that another time because I know we don't have much time. Yeah. But um, what I'm saying is that parents should not allow therapists to throw them under the bus. Parents have... We're talking about loving, devoted parents who from day one, from the moment they found out they were pregnant or the moment they signed the uh, adoption papers, are 100% devoted to this child and doing everything and more mm -hmm. for this child. So 
it makes me very angry when I hear about therapists who throw these parents under the bus and tell them that they're the problem. The parents are not the problem. The parents have very good reason to be concerned about what's going on and to want to take it slowly and carefully and address all the other mental health issues that are going on first. So there are a lot of websites. Let me just mention a few of them. I won't be able to mention all of them, but first of all, I'll mention my website, which is uh, miriamgrossmanmd.com. And I have uh, articles and videos. I wrote an important article for the Daily Wire um, going through the medical consequences of transitioning. Um, it is behind a paywall, but it, it's, it's very thorough, and I, I think that it's, it's must-reading for parents. And then I have other articles and videos addressing uh, other things, among them the dangers of social transition, because people may think that a new name and, and new pronouns and a haircut isn't a big deal, but I explain how it's actually kind of getting on the ramp getting on the ramp that leads to an expressway toward medicalization. So it's kind of a gateway. It's kind of entering into that. Now, these things are not easy. This is a very difficult challenge for parents, but there's a tremendous amount of support. So I want, first of all, to also to tell parents about a website. It's www.segm.org, and that sounds for Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. And they're going to find all the articles that they need there. And I'm just going to throw in, I didn't get to mention, very important, that in other countries, okay, in England, Sweden, Finland, France, Belgium, Australia, and New Zealand, these countries are all taking a step back from gender-affirming care. So what we're doing in this country, what we're in a rush to do to our kids, they have done a 180. And these are some of the most progressive, LGBT-friendly countries on the face of the... I mean, Sweden. Mm -hmm. Sweden, Finland. They have done a 180, and they are now saying, we don't have the data. We don't have good research that, uh, you know, that allows us to to assume that this is the path we need to take with these kids. We need to stop and do more research and give these kids psychotherapy. So for once, we really should act more like Europe. <laughs> in this case, yes, Scandinavia in particular. Um, but yes, like Europe. So, so there's SEGM, S-E-G-M dot org. There's a fantastic site. It's a substack with essays by parents must read. You must, everyone should read this substack. It's called Parents, P-I-T-T, -T, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Transgender. But the, the substack is PITT, P-I-T-T. And you have hundreds of essays written anonymously by parents who have gone through it and are going through it. And you're going to get the raw truth. That is the raw truth there from parents. It's a very powerful site. Yeah, there's many other, there's, you know, they just need to search for, like, um, for other, there's parent groups, there's support groups, there's even retreats now that are happening 
uh, parent retreats for, there's an organization called GenSpect, G-E-N-S-P-E-C-T, um, and they, great website, great information for parents. Um, so there's a lot going on, and parents should not think that the message that Joe Biden and Rachel Levine is giving them is the message that they need to accept. It is not correct. It is not based on the, the real science over here about this. And uh, uh, parents, parents should get educated, uh, get support from other parents. And there are therapists out there also who do this work with families and are not gender affirming. They are what's called gender exploratory which means you wait, you talk, and you heal. And that, that is the answer to so many of these kids in distress. Okay. I'm sure that'll be helpful to a lot of parents. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't done it already, please be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening and be here later today for the Daily Signal Top News. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Rank. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.